One of the ironies of our modern age is that though we are more connected than ever before, it feels like we're more fragmented than ever before. How many of you have at least one social media kind of tool? Okay, how many of you have more than one social media? Like you've got Facebook and Twitter and like Instagram and all these other ones that we haven't heard of before. Uh, we have all these tools at our disposal to stay connected with each other and to talk to people. And I'm really grateful for those, those tools. Uh, my family lives in Arizona, and I'm thankful that I can just text a picture to them at any time or upload something to Facebook, and they can, they can sort of be involved and see what's going on in Timothy's life and what's going on in our lives. I've got family in New Zealand, and it's amazing that, like, instantaneously you can, like, video call and talk to people on the other side of the world. It's amazing the tools that we have to stay connected. Yet study after study after study shows that we are an incredibly lonely generation. Uh, the, the COVID pandemic, everyone's social distancing and staying at home and stay-at-home orders and all that good stuff. You're like, please don't remind me. It just underscored and, and highlighted how fragmented and how lonely our society is. Even with the advent of social media, even with the advent of smartphones, ironically, has left us more disconnected and distant than ever before. And it's a wonderful thing, right, to be able to to FaceTime and talk to people on the Internet. But I think sometimes what happens is that disembodied experience mediated through a piece of glass can distract us from the people who are literally right in front of us. Just go out to eat sometime, and you will see people, and it's not just, like, the millennials. It's everybody uh, sitting there on their phone. Somebody's right across the table from them. They're not talking to each other. Uh, It used to be, like... You know, the kids these days. Now I'm looking like it's the boomers as well who are doing this, right? We're just so, so engrossed in, the, in cyberspace and the world of, the, of social media, we miss the connections right in front of us. And study after study has shown that this loneliness and this fragmentation and this place of being disconnected isn't good for us. As loneliness increases, so does you know, mental illness and depression and anxiety and all of these other things. I think of one thing that the last few years has taught us is the deep human need we have for relationships, right? The need we have for face-to-face relationships, community, and a place of belonging, whether that's your family or what I want to talk about this morning, the church of Jesus Christ. In a fragmented world, in a lonely world, in an isolated world, God has ordained His church. By the way, church just means assembly or congregation or gathering. God's ordained his gathering, his family, his people, his body to be not just a place for people to come and hang out, but as we saw two weeks ago, to literally be a new humanity. Like this new creation that God's making this new thing and he's taking Jews and Gentiles and people from all over the world and making them one body in Christ where God's saying, that old humanity that's fallen, look, I'm making a new humanity. Something that is Different, something that is radically different than anything else in the world. The church, the gathering of God's people, is not a building, it's not an organization, it's the body of Christ. It's the people that have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And you know what it's meant to be? It's meant to be a gathering of saints, it's meant to be a testimony to the world of God's grace. And because of that, this is what Paul, where Paul is going to be going in Ephesians 4 is to say this new humanity needs to have a couple of marks to it. One of them is to be unity. If Jesus has died to make us one, we ought to live like it. And the other one is if Jesus has died to save us from our sins, we ought also to live like it, right? So unity and purity ought to mark God's new humanity. 
So what we want to start looking at this week and in coming weeks, really all the way down to verse 16, Paul will talk about the fact that this new humanity, this church, this society of redeemed rebels is to be marked by a visible unity that the world can look at and see what God is doing. Now, beginning in chapter 4, we're coming to a hard break in the letter. You notice in verse 1 that word, therefore. For three chapters, Paul has been talking about the riches we have in Christ. He says, you have all the blessings in Christ. You have been chosen and predestined and redeemed and illuminated and sealed. And you've got the power of God and you've been raised from spiritual death to life. And God's made you one and he's made you this one new humanity and this mystery, this plan that God is revealing. And then we saw last week this incredible prayer where Paul's saying, I want you guys to know how much Jesus loves you. How much Christ loves you, the depth and breadth and height of that incredible love that has made you one. But I think the question maybe you have when we get into the theological depths like that is, so what? I've heard people say, like, well, the doctrine of, you know, predestination, who cares? There's no practical use to it. Or, okay, Jesus died on the cross, but we still got to live our lives. Like, so what? We're now getting into the so what. The first three chapters of the book, Paul had exactly one command. There's one imperative in, in the first three chapters, and it was remember. Remember what you used to be without Jesus. Second half of the book, he's got... 40 commands, 40 imperatives, do this, do this. Theology is practical and it has real implications in our lives. And the first one that Paul wants to draw our attention to, number one on the list, is if Jesus has redeemed you, if Jesus has saved you, live in unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's important to God that we do. God wants us to live for his glory in this world, and the way we're going to do that is by walking, living in real, visible unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ, not just in this assembly, but in this world. So what what are the requirements of unity? There's a lot of talk in our our world today about unity, and there always has been. You could go back a half century ago to like the, excuse me, the ecumenical movement where like, hey, let's try to be one and let's do evangelicals and Catholics together and let's have these big sort of theological, you know, sing kumbaya kind of thing and pretend that we're all one in Jesus. What, what is real unity and what are the requirements of it, both on a, the level of this assembly and the, the body of Christ globally? What do we need for there to be this kind of unity that Jesus died to secure? Well, I'm really glad you asked. Let's answer that question. Number one, unity, the kind of unity that's going to bring glory to God in a fragmented world is a unity that requires gospel grace. So verse one says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, literally the prisoner in the Lord, beseech you that you would walk worthy of the calling wherewith you're called. What Paul is saying is there are implications to the gospel. God has saved you and redeemed you through the death of his son in your place. Right? You've been forgiven, you've been made new, you've been given this new heart. You are to live differently as a result. We're descending from sort of the mountaintop of theology at the end of Ephesians 3 to the, the din of the camp. From our, our place in the heavenlies in Christ to walking through the dusty roads of daily life. Like Here's how you live. Here's what Christianity looks like on Monday morning. Right, That's what the therefore is telling us. And Paul reminds us, he you know, listen, he could come along at this point and be like, now listen here, you, you, you rascals. You guys need to get along with each other, right? Like edify stupid. He could come along with that mentality. He could come along and be like, I'm an apostle. This is God's word. Shape up. I, 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 seem, I, I get the implication here. The church at Ephesus, Jews and Gentiles weren't really getting along. And Paul's like, hey, y'all need to get along. But he doesn't come along with like a theological two by four and just like smack him up in the side of the head. He comes along and says, I'm the prisoner in the Lord and I'm urging you. Coming alongside 
I'm urging. You know, sometimes the best approach is the encouraging one. You know, how many of us really respond to someone coming and yelling at us? Right? You need to love one another. Okay, that's not, that's, like, like, that's not really motivating. When Paul comes along and says, I'm the prisoner in the Lord. I'm, uh, he's under house arrest in Rome. He says, I'm a prisoner in the Lord. Y'all are in Christ, and I'm in Christ. I'm in this relationship with Jesus, and this relationship with Jesus has cost me. Listen, it's going to cost you as well. You're going to need to walk. Now, this metaphor of walk, you hear people, you know, you need to walk the walk. It's how you live your life. It's a metaphor for, uh, you can't get anything more ordinary than walking. Most of us walked into the room here today. You don't even think about it. It's just one foot in front of another. He's saying your ordinary Monday through Saturday life. A lot of times we get this idea that the Christian life is about the spectacular high points of like experience. Um, there's, all, there's all this debate going on about the revival at Asbury University. and you know, I, I'm not there to know what's going on, and I pray for revival and hope for revival. And we need revival. But let's also be careful not to neglect the ordinary. Sometimes we're so, we want this spectacular display of the Spirit of God that we forget that God's like, and I just want you to walk worthy, like go to work tomorrow and be faithful for me in your job. Walk worthy. Work worthy of what? Now, the idea of worthy, it comes from the idea of a scales, right? You've got something heavy on the other side, and you need to sort of balance it out. He's saying, I want you to walk worthy of the calling God's given you. So God has given you this incredible calling, and calling here is not like the call to ministry. This is the, the call to salvation. This is how the word Paul uses calling to say, you have been called to saving faith in Jesus, right? The, the Holy Spirit has drawn you to faith in Jesus and brought you into a relationship with God through Christ. In other words, you're saved, God has saved you, live like it. That's the idea here. Live like you are a child of God. There's a responsibility that flows from the gospel grace. The same grace that has saved us calls us to, calls us to live a new way. We even saw that in Ephesians 2. By grace, you're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, a gift of God, not of works. And he says, you're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has before ordained that you would what? Walk in them, right? God's grace creates this obligation for us to live differently. You have been adopted into the family of God, so you live like you're in the family of God. Using the metaphor of riches that Ephesians uses, if somebody were to suddenly deposit $10 million, like you do your tax return, right, and the IRS accidentally adds a couple extra zeros on your, uh, on your tax return, you're like, man, instead of my tax return being $38.43, it's $38 million. Right? I'll just keep quiet about the mistake. And you all of a sudden have $38 million. You would live differently, right? You've got the grace of God that has brought salvation and completely changed the control center of your life. It is frankly absurd to say, I'm born again, I'm saved, and nothing's changed about my life. I'm just a carnal Christian, like, that's ridiculous. God's grace changes us, and it changes not just our destiny, that I'm going to heaven when I die, but the direction of my life, that there is something fundamentally different. So what are we saying here? What Paul is building up here to verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. It's like a stair step, uh, the, the way the language is built. That The worthy walk that he is talking about is really the walk of unity. He says, okay, live like you're saved, and here's what I mean that you live in unity with brothers and sisters in Christ. It requires this experience of being born again. Listen, you, we cannot have unity as Christians if we're not actually Christians. I know that's like really stinking obvious, but sometimes people want to say, let's have unity around a shared political ideology. 
like some other place. It's got church on the sign, and they sort of vote similarly to us. So let's get together and have kind of a worship service and blow some shofar horns. And No, 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 that's not unity. You don't have unity by saying, well, we're opposed to the same sort of evils in society, so let's sort of join. No, we have unity because we've experienced the grace of God that has transformed our hearts and changed our eternal destiny. But let me give you a second requirement for unity, and it's in verse 2. So Paul's now sort of double-clicking on, okay, I want you to walk uh, worthy. You have this transformed gospel grace has changed you. God's called you. He's given you the salvation. Here's what I mean by it, verse 2, with all humility and meekness and patience. He lists out these virtues. He lists out these character traits. Isn't that interesting? The first thing he doesn't say, here's a list of rules for how you live. Been times in my Christian life that I have thought that the Christian life has been about like following certain rules. Like being a good Christian means you do this and you don't do this and you do do this. The Christian life is so expansive and the experiences and the things, the places we're going to be are so different. God does not even attempt to give us a list of rules to say always do this. He says, instead, I want you to walk in a way that is fitting for the calling I've given you. And you need to develop these attitudes, this character, humility, meekness, patience. Now, I've got the adjective Christ-like on here, Christ-like character, not just to be like, hey, that's cool, it's alliterated, but because if you look at Jesus, you see all of these traits on display. You say, who in history was meek and lowly in heart? It's Jesus. Who was gentle and lowly? Jesus. Who was like that perfectly all of the time, every minute of his life? Jesus and only Jesus. There's not one of us in this room who lives out verse 2 all the time. Jesus is the measure of this. So later on in Ephesians 4, um, let's see, if I look down to verse 13, Paul's like, until we come into the unity of the faith, uh, verse 13 of Ephesians 4, and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. Who's the perfect man? It's Jesus. Jesus is the the measure of these character traits we have. We could also look at them through the prism of Ephesians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness. That's the same idea as meekness, faith. These are the result of the Spirit of God working in our lives to make us like Jesus. A lot of times when people start talking about unity, they want to talk about organization. Like, well, if we could merge this denomination with that denomination, we'll sort of have this unity. Paul doesn't even go into this discussion about organization. He talks about character. He talks about the attitudes we are supposed to have. Okay, I'm going to ask this again from last week. Um, is it hot in here? Okay, it's hot. Chris, do you want to just bump these over to AC for us? Uh, it was like 61 when I came in this morning, and now it's like 101. And uh, We need to have humility to have unity. Philippians chapter 2, Paul talks about this to the church of Philippi. He says, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind. If we have a bunch of people who always insist on always getting their way, it is impossible to have unity. If all of us are like, I'm in control, I'm autonomous, I'm in charge, and everyone should do what I want, there's no way that we're going to have unity unless we can find a bunch of people who all want the same thing, uh, which is not biblical unity. Real unity is going to come from deferring to other people. It's going to come from this humility of saying, I see myself as God sees me. I don't know how you can get through Ephesians 1 to 3 and not be humbled. Because you might think, well, I'm a Christian because, well, I just am smarter than other people. No, you read Ephesians 1 to 3 and you find out the only reason why you are a Christian is God in his grace saw fit to save you. And before you were saved, you brought nothing to the table because you were spiritually dead. 
Like, that's pretty humbling. Like, if the more I look at God's grace and what he has done for me in Christ, the more I have to stand back and say, I've got nothing. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to that cross I cling. The humblest group of people on the planet should be a bunch of Christians who know they have been redeemed by God's grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. Uh, yet, let's be honest, how often is the reality the opposite? Get a bunch of Christians in the room, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men are. I'm not like those heathen out there. The more we recognize God's grace and we recognize my lostness without it, the more I should be humble and be ready to defer to others. There's a second trait that's mentioned in verse 2. So there's lowliness, that's humility. And then there's this term meekness, which could also be rendered gentleness. Let me give you the definition from the lexicon. It's the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. I live in a world where everyone's like pretty impressed with themselves and like, let me sort of put myself out there and let me doctor the image of myself that I'm going to put out there on Instagram so everyone's sort of as equally as impressed with me as I am of myself. Kind of absurd when you start to think about it. Gentleness is saying, I'm not going to take myself too seriously. I, I, I recognize that I'm not the most important person in the room, and I'm willing to defer to other people as a result. Aristotle talked about this word, and he says it's kind of the, the, the medium, the golden mean between someone who is always angry about everything, and then the person on the other end who is like never angry. Uh, we could sort of colloquially say, this is what meekness is, it's strength under control. Right? It's not me saying, I'm always right and I always have to get my way, but it's saying, I'm going to defer to God and I'm willing to defer to other people. But it's not because I'm a passive pushover. Right? That's not, sometimes we use the word meekness to refer to someone who's spineless and limp-wristed and you know, is a protoplasmic jelly. Right? Like, no, that's not meekness. It is not a metaphor for weak or a, a synonym with weakness, but it is a willing choice to not get angry or assert my rights even when I could. It's the voluntary gentleness of someone who is strong. Right, so I'm now to the stage where I can kind of wrestle with Timothy a little bit. Um, just so you know, I'm a little bit stronger than him. And like, if I wanted to, I could you know, chuck him across the room. Okay, meekness is saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay on his level. I'm going to restrain my strength. That, that's sort of a picture of it. Meekness is the voluntary gentleness of the strong. Okay, it's not really gentleness if you're a big wimp. It is gentleness if you have the ability to be something, and you say, I'm going to restrain that. The voluntary gentleness of the strong, not the servile passivity of the weak. It's neither spineless timidity nor heartless cruelty. We see a lot of heartless cruelty today. You give people a keyboard and an internet connection, and just all kinds of stuff comes out of their hearts. Meekness is neither of those. Again, the prime example is who? Jesus. Right, here's a guy who, though he is equal with God, does not grasp after it, but he empties himself and takes on himself the form of a servant and goes to the cross. When he's, about, he's on the cusp of going to the cross, he says, you guys realize, right, I could call like, all these legions of angels. Like He's the creator of the universe. He could have nuked in an instant the people who were torturing him to death, and he did not. Here's a guy who as well was strong enough to say, you will not turn my father's house into a religious Walmart, and he drives them out and flips the tables over. That's not like sinful, uh, you know, uh, sinful pride and anger coming out. That is him making the choice to say, I am going to assert divine authority here. In Jesus, we see the perfect balance. Someone who is angry at sin, yet gentle towards sinners. Someone who can flip the tables of the money changers, yet be as gentle as a lamb. 
to a woman taken in adultery. If you're hearing that and you're thinking, yep, me too, we kind of are missing the point. We don't measure up to these. We, we need the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus to transform our hearts and to develop these things by his spirit. Now think about how this is essential to unity. Uh, we're in a church that's growing, and even though we've got a bunch of people sick and traveling today, we're in a church that's growing, which means there's more personalities coming in. And here's something about people's personalities. Nobody has the same personality as you, and everybody has something in their personality that, if it's amplified enough, could drive you nuts, right? Um, you, you, you marry your spouse, and you're, like, in love, and then you get to know each other, and you realize, mm, we're not exactly the same, and there's differences that we have to work through and communicate, In the context of a church, you get all of these personalities and friction with each other. In a growing church, you're going to have those clashing personalities. You're going to have various generations who have different tastes. Uh, I think if we were to do a poll here, we we would probably find that there are as many different tastes when it comes to, like, music preferences as there are people in the room. Like, I like Beethoven. Other people are like, I can't believe it. That's boring and horrible, right? Other people are like, I love gospel or I love classic rock. And there's all of these different... If we say we have to all agree on these things to have a church, like, good luck. We're going to have a church with clashing personalities, multiple generations, numerous races, various backgrounds, and voluntarily deferring to each other is absolutely essential to having a church that is united about the thing that really matters, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 15, Romans 14 talk about how we should work through matters where there's personal preferences and differences of background. You know, we all have these things that we sort of feel like very strongly about because of the ways we were raised and where we grew up. I'll give you just a really simple example. Where I grew up, we didn't say yes, ma'am, or yes, sir. We didn't use ma'am and sir. But you know, here in the South, not responding to a parent with like yes, ma'am, or yes, sir could be taken as as a sign of disrespect. My conscience isn't calibrated to have that, so I'm sort of learning that. Um, How do we work through things? We can have things on a much bigger scale. The early church where you have Jews who have uh, have a conscience issue against eating pork and Gentiles who've eaten pork their whole lives, and one thing or the other is unspiritual because of what they eat. Paul tells us how to work through that. Read Romans 14 and 15. The, The TLDR on that is the spiritually mature should defer to those who are spiritually weak. But there's a third trait here, and it's translated long-suffering or or patience in verse 2. This is the state of being able to bear up under provocation. Isn't it interesting that Paul's, like, very realistic about what the church is going to be? He doesn't have this utopian idea that, like, once everybody gets saved, a rainbow forms in the sky, and unicorns come sort of dancing through the meadow, and everybody gets along and just sort of dances... No, you get a bunch of sinners, redeemed sinners though we are, into a room together. There is the opportunity for provocation. I still have a sin nature. So do you. We're all battling indwelling sin. And you know what? Even in church, people are going to sin against each other. This is where patience comes in. This idea of being long-suffering, you say, yeah, that just seems kind of weak to like put up with people wronging us. Just remind you, it is an attribute of Almighty God. That if God were not long-suffering and patient, none of us would be here right now. We're called to demonstrate this to each other. Now you say, what does this look like? Just over a page. Paul will expand on this a little bit more, but Ephesians 4.32. Here's what it's going to look like. Be ye kind one to another. A mutual kindness to each other. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another. You know, the people who need forgiveness are sinners. And only sinners need forgiveness. 
Even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. God's forgiven you, so forgive each other. God's been patient with you, so be patient with each other. So these Christ-like character traits are absolutely essential for there to be unity in Cloverleaf Baptist Church or any church or in the global church of Jesus Christ. Without these traits, lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, you cannot have unity. It's impossible, but with them, unity cannot fail. If all of us say, is my ambition to be humble and to be meek and to defer to each other, if we have a church full of people who are all mutually deferring to one another and saying, I want what's best for the other person, and I'm willing to, to talk to them and to forgive and to meet them halfway and to work through differences, you have a church that's unity will be unbreakable. But I want to move on to a third uh, essential ingredient of unity. Okay, we've got, to, we've got to have gospel grace, God's calling that enables this. We've got to have Christ-like character. But now we, we, we move to some action. So the end of verse 2 into verse 3, we have forbearing one another and endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We get this nasty, evil word, effort, work. Sometimes we make this mistake. We think, I'm saved by grace and I'm not saved by works, which I say amen to. If you're trusting in any work to save you, if you're trusting your baptism or your good works or your niceness or your morality... According to the Bible, you're not saved. We trust in Jesus and him alone. We're saved by faith alone. But sometimes we make the assumption from that we make the leap of logic to say, well, if I'm not saved by works, therefore effort has no no place in the Christian life. It's just preach the gospel to yourself and then go on with your day. Paul uses this word endeavoring, verse 3, which kind of gives the idea maybe, the wrong idea, that it's like, well, just give it your best shot. The word here is diligence. Haste, speed, giving all due diligence to protecting unity. It's going to take effort to keep unity. But not just, you know, like human, reach down deep inside of yourself and work hard to get along with other people. But this is empowered by the Spirit of God. So notice verse 3 says, endeavoring to keep the unity. Notice these next three words. Of the Spirit. And notice it doesn't say endeavoring to create the unity of the Spirit, but, but keep it or guard it. In other words, we don't, by our effort, create unity between believers. The Holy Spirit of God is the one who does that. He's the one who's called us to to God. He's the one who's given us a new heart. He's the one who has raised us to to eternal life and given, given us the new birth. The unity of the saints has already been created through the gospel. Now it is our job to maintain, to keep, to guard that. But it requires this effort. It requires diligence. Now, backing up into verse 2, part of what this is going to look like is forbearing one another in love. Forbearing is the idea of putting up with each other. Again, which I love how clear-eyed and honest this is. There's going to be people in the church of Jesus Christ that you need to learn to put up with. You need to learn to tolerate some of the things that they do or believe or think or say that maybe rub you the wrong way. You put up with each other. It's going to require forgiving those who wrong us. And here's the deal, because there are times when we do have to confront sin. Because I think maybe the question that's coming up in your mind is, yeah, but what if someone is actually sinning against God in a really serious way? Okay, Galatians 6 tells us what to do. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. 1 Corinthians 5 even says there may be occurrences where someone is living in such a sinful lifestyle that it calls into question whether they're actually saved and the church actually removes them from the membership of the church. So this forbearing is not forbearing with like people's blatant sin that is you know, high-handed sin against God. It's putting up with those foibles and those, those things that they do that maybe are inadvertent. 
So have you ever wondered, when do I forbear and just put up with someone's wrongs against me? And when do I go to them and confront them? Because you can get this balance wrong. I've run into people who want to sit down and have a confrontation and be like, we've got to, we've got to talk through an issue. And it's like, not really an issue. And you're like, couldn't you have just let that one go? Hey, First Peter says, let love cover a multitude of sins. So long as there's a time where you say, you know what, I'm going to absorb this one, and love's going to cover the multitude of sins. And then there's other times that if your brother sins against you, go to him, tell him his fault. How do you know the difference? Let me give you some diagnostic questions, um, seven diagnostic questions just to, to, for you to have. If you wonder, okay, do I need to go and confront so-and-so and have a conversation, or I just let it go? Okay, question number one, was there sin inadvertent or intentional? Listen, we all do things inadvertently, accidentally, not thinking, not paying attention, and you may wrong someone or hurt their feelings. Be gracious to say, you know what, I think that one was an accident. I'll let it go. Maybe it was intentional and there's a heart issue that needs to be dealt with. Second question, did their sin bring lasting damage or can I simply move on? Uh, Just because I feel bad or feel slighted or feel embarrassed by something that someone said or did or didn't say doesn't necessarily mean I need to go make a big deal about it. Is it lasting, or is it something that I will get over, they will get over, and we can move forward? Maybe I don't need to go confront them. Third question is related. Has the relationship been altered by the sin? Some people can sin against you in such a way that the relationship has been almost broken, and it's awkward you're in the same room, you don't want to have eye contact, and next week when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, you're kind of thinking, man, I hope they got right with God. and come over. That could be a problem. Related to that, are you regularly reminded by what they have done? Like every day you wake up and you're like, I remember what brother so-and-so did to me and I just can't let that go. Okay, maybe you need to go talk to brother so-and-so and make that right. Are they harming others through their sin? This is a big one because sometimes people will say, you know, there's been abuse that's been committed in the church and we just sort of need to keep it hush, hush. No, other people have been wronged by that sin. Other people's lives have been wrecked by that sin and it is It is wrong and sinful to refuse to confront that or bring that to the light. Are they bringing uh, bringing shame to Christ? If their sin is known in the community and it's bringing shame to the cause of Christ, it's got to be dealt with. It's got to be called out. It's got to be confronted. And then finally, is the sin a repeated pattern? It's one thing if someone, you know, they didn't say good morning to you or they were having a bad day and they sort of got short with you and said an angry word. And it's another thing when they're like that to you all the time, Right? So just seven questions. These aren't Bible. This is just sanctified wisdom to know when do I forbear? When do I confront? When do I let it go? And when do I sit down and say, let's have a conversation? Preserving unity requires empowered effort. Having those conversations is hard work. You know, it's easier to just be like, let me pretend the issue's not there than it is to care enough about the relationship to go talk to someone. It's easier to just sort of bear a grudge than it is to forgive and try to restore the relationship. That's why Paul says in verse 3, it's going to require effort. It's going to require diligence, empowered by the Spirit. This reaches back to Ephesians 2, where Paul says that Jesus, through his work on the cross, has reconciled us into one new man. The, The unity has been created by the cross of Jesus Christ. He's abolished in Ephesians 2, verse 15, the enmity. He's made in himself, out of the two, one new man making peace. The cross of Jesus Christ has created this unity. The Spirit of God is the one who has brought it into being. One writer said this, To live in a manner which mars the unity of the Spirit is to do despot to the gracious, reconciling work of Christ. 
if Jesus died to make us one and to give us unity, it is devaluing the work of Jesus to say, I don't care that I'm at disharmony with a believer. It's devaluing the work of Jesus to say unity doesn't really matter. But I want to come into this final essential element of unity. Verses 4 to 6 is this Trinitarian truth. We picked up on the songs today. We started off uh, with the Shema. God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There's only one God. He is a united being. There's no division in him. Yet we also have this strand of truth in the Bible that this God who is one is also three. He's three in one and one in three. And so we sang, Come Thou Almighty King. And I don't know if you picked up on the fact, but that went through all three persons of the Trinity. And holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, blessed Trinity. Then we talked about, we, we sang, Yet not I, but through Christ in me, that we're only going to be able to obey Jesus through Jesus dwelling in us and empowering us. And the church is one foundation, which is basically riffing on this text It is the truth that God is one, and God is three, and God is three in one, and one in three, that is the ultimate foundation for the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. You say, okay, that's a little heady for me. I want sort of practical stuff. This is where Paul goes in verses four to six. There's one body, one spirit, even as you're called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. You picked up on the, the repetition. We have the word one repeated seven times. There's a sevenfold oneness that undergirds the unity of the church. But did you notice each verse is built around a person of the Trinity? So verse 4 mentions the Spirit. He's the one who makes the one body. He's the one who has called us in this hope. Verse 5 talks about one Lord. That's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how that word is used in the book of Ephesians. He's the object of our faith. It's in his name that we're baptized. So we've got the Spirit, we've got the Son. And then we get verse 6 explicitly, one God and Father of all. Our unity is built on the truth of the Trinity. That's the basis. The basis of our unity is not sappy sentimentality. Like, oh, we all just sort of are one and we like each other and let's all just get along. It's not common humanity that... Oh, it's the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man and the old liberal idea that we are all just sort of one and God likes us and off we go. Paul's getting beyond even common experience to say, well, we all sort of like the same things and have the same culture and we have this culturally homogenous group of people who naturally get along. No, the basis of this unity is the reality of who God is. Now, what I think is interesting is I think what Paul is saying is you want unity, there's got to be some truth that we agree on. Unity is not just relationship divorced from truth. Some people will be, say, well, doctrine divides, let's throw doctrine out the window and just sort of get along as Christians. Paul says, yes, get along as Christians, but there is a core of truth we've got to believe. And here's the list. Here's the things that we must agree on to have a church. We must agree on who God is, that he is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We've got to agree what a church is. This idea of one body gets to our understanding of who's in and who's not. If we say, well, everybody's the church, okay, we're going to have a problem there with that. If we say the doors of the church are wide open, anybody who shows up is sort of apart, we're going to just affirm them, that's going to be a problem. We've got to get the gospel right. He mentions one Lord, one faith. If we have some people who say, well, we get saved by works, and we get saved by sacraments, and we get saved by baptism, and then some say we get saved by faith, we have a major disconnect. To have unity in the church, we must get the gospel right. 
We cannot have unity apart from the good news of what Jesus has done and our response in faith. Then he mentions the, the hope of our, of our calling, uh, a belief that this is not the end, but there is a resurrection and there is eternal life yet to come. Listen, if we all come along and say, well, this is all there is, and we just better make the best world we can right now, let's just because just, there is no eternal life, we're missing something crucial. In fact, if you deny that, we're, we're nibbling away at the edges of the, 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 the core of Christian faith. We've got to recognize who God is, the Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all, that he's the creator. So here's the list of key doctrines, what we might call first-order doctrines. Say, what do we have to agree on to be a church, to have unity? It's these things. These are the first-order issues that if we get these wrong, you may not be a Christian. Here's the problem in my experience we want to add to this list. Notice what he does not say. He doesn't say one music style, one Bible translation, and one political party. Those are not essential to the unity of the church. And if we make them essential to the unity of the church, we're actually dividing the body of Christ. We say, well, we all have to you know, have exactly the same candidate that we vote for in every primary election in order to have unity. If you don't, we're going to discipline you out of the church. That's nuts. I saw an exchange on Twitter the other week where someone said, if the pastor reads and likes a certain columnist, go to a different church. I'm like, where's that in the Bible? Right? Let's unite around the things that the Bible emphasizes and the things that the Bible does not emphasize, leave those to the area where Christians can have good faith disagreements. We don't have to agree on every little jot and tittle in order to have unity. But there are some things that are non-negotiable, and here they are in this text. And we can sort of double-click on each of them. It's not like, well, you just agree, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, you're in. Well, what does that mean? So let's walk through, what does this mean? There is one body and one spirit. There's one hope of your calling. We're talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, we cannot deny the reality and the personality and the work of the Holy Spirit and be Orthodox Christians. Like, we have to believe in the Holy Spirit and His work in making us one body. We're talking about the new humanity. The one body is the body of Christ to which every believer belongs. And by the way, we can't say the body of Christ equals some particular organization on earth. There are born-again Christians scattered across all these different so-called church denominations and whatnot, and some that might actually be really bad. But if you're a believer in Jesus who has been born again, you're a member of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the totality of all believers in all times and all places. And one day the body of Christ will be gathered together before the throne of Jesus. One spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who has placed us into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We've been baptized by one spirit into the body of Jesus. The Holy Spirit's the one who convicts us of sin, who gives us new life, who opens our eyes and unites us. Then we get one hope of your calling. Again, it's the Holy Spirit, the, one, the, the agent of redemption that, the, that calls us to faith in Jesus. Ephesians 1 kind of broke down the, the, the role each person of the Trinity plays. The Father chooses us, the Son redeems us, and then the Spirit is the one who calls and seals us. Some people put it this way, the Father thought it, the Son bought it, and the Spirit wrought it. All three persons involved in our redemption, the Spirit's the one who's called us in one hope of your calling. This is pretty awesome to think about. Every Christian who's come to saving faith in Jesus will be in heaven with you for all eternity. That's our hope, right? Uh, the people in this room who are believers in Jesus, 
You're going to be with forever around the throne of Jesus. Like, that's a pretty awesome thing to share in common with another individual. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, you go to other countries, and here's some guy, you're like, I don't even speak the same language. I'm going to be in heaven forever with that guy I met on a hill in Papua New Guinea who believes in Jesus. Like, how sweet is that? How awesome is that? That's what we need to be able to have unity in the church, not just sort of well, we all sort of look the same and get along and like the same football team. No, we've got one hope, something that's eternal and transcendent that can never be taken away. We move to verse 5. We see the role of the sun. Okay, so the spirit is the anchor of verse 4. The sun's the anchor of verse 5. One Lord. Why, why does he call him Lord as opposed to Savior? Because this emphasizes the authority of Jesus. I said a few minutes ago that if we are all sort of insisting on, it's my way or the highway, if we've got a church full of people saying it's my way or the highway, we're all going to take the highway because we're not going to be able to agree on like doing it my way. But what if we all said what Jesus wants, that's what goes. What the Bible says, not our culture or our traditions, that's going to be the law of what happens in Cloverleaf Baptist Church. The lordship and the supremacy of Jesus, that's what this is about. It's about making him known. He's the king of the church. He's the Lord of our lives. He's the king. We're the subjects. He's the master. We're his servants. This is the foundational confession of Christianity. Jesus is Lord. Paul says in Romans 10 that if anyone will confess with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Okay, that's more than just, it's not that those three words are magical words that if you just sort of say, Jesus is Lord, you're going to go to heaven. It's the reality that that expresses that he is God, that he's divine, and that he's the master, and I'm submitting myself to him. Paul in 1 Corinthians says nobody can do that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who brings us to that point. We get now to this next line here in verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Faith and baptism sort of go, go together. Faith is the spiritual reality, and then baptism is saying that to the world. You know who's the object of our faith? It's not the church. It's like, well, I believe in the church. No, it's the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. That's what we trust. And it's, it's the fact that all of us have had that experience of coming to the end of ourselves and saying, I can't save myself, only Jesus can, and I'm going to rely only on him. This faith in Jesus Christ. I said a minute ago, if we're going to have unity in the church, we have to get the gospel right. And the gospel is not try harder. The gospel is trust Jesus and him alone. One faith. And then one baptism. You say, well, I know people who have been baptized multiple times. They got sprinkled as a baby, and then they got baptized the first time they got saved, and they got baptized again the second time they thought they got saved. Apart from faith, dunking someone underwater or sprinkling water on their head only gets them wet. It's not actually baptism. Okay, there's one baptism, and it is the baptism of someone who has believed in Jesus. So there's no such thing as re-baptism, right? Either you were saved and you got baptized in the name of the Father and the Son of the Lord Jesus, uh, or you weren't saved and you got put under some water, but it's not actually baptism. There's one baptism that corresponds to your conversion. And, and maybe you're here today, by the way, and you say, you know what, I made a profession of faith when I was three, and I got baptized when I was four. But let me be honest, I really came to faith in Jesus when I was 19. You need to be baptized. You need to follow Jesus in believer's baptism as saying, my heart's been changed, and I'm displaying that to the world. But think about the implication of this. 
someone comes, they put their faith in Jesus, they're born again, their life changes, they publicly declare their faith in the waters of baptism, there's something really unifying about the fact that we've all done that. We've all come in through the same door. And then verse 6, we've talked about the role of the Spirit, the role of the Son, the role of the Father in creating this unity, one God and Father of all, who's above all, through all, and in all. Notice the repetition of that word all, like the supremacy of God the Father over everything is essential to our unity. We've got to confess that. We've got to believe that. Now, there's a little bit of debate. Is the all, all things or all people? I think in the context, we're talking about relationships. And the all here is not like every person in the world is, can call God Father, but we're talking about all who have come to faith in Jesus can call God Father. So we pray, our Father who art in heaven. That's the prayer of someone who has been adopted into the family and has intimacy with God through Christ. God is our Father because he is eternally the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Back in, in chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul had said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Further on down in Ephesians 1, he says in verse 6, uh, He has made us accepted, he has graced us in the beloved. So God the Father loves God the Son, and when I become a believer, I'm united to God the Son, and so I now call God, God the Father. This is Amazing! This is like the throbbing heartbeat of the Christian life, is that I come to God as Father, not as judge in a relationship with Him. And every believer in Jesus has that same relationship. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 18. For through Him, that's Jesus, we both, both Jew and Gentile, have access by one Spirit unto who? The Father. If all of us legitimately call God Dad, call Him Father, What does that make us? That makes us brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters don't always get along with each other. They're not always the same. They don't always look alike. But we are part of the same family. Every single believer can call God Father. So look at his fatherhood in in Ephesians 4, 6. He's above all, and we're, okay, over every Christian. He's the Lord over every Christian. Through all, he's working through every believer. And by the way, he doesn't work through all of us the same way. He gives us different gifts. We'll talk about that next week, the diversity that he saw fit. He didn't give us all the same, you know, everybody go teach, but he gives us these different gifts, and he's in all. If God indwells every one of us, then we corporately are the temple of God. We are the dwelling place of God. Now, here's what I'm saying. Our unity is based on the unity of our triune God. This is staggering. Jim read earlier in our service, John 17. And Jesus praying for us. Here's God the Son interceding to the Father on behalf of us, you and me. Not just the 12, not the 11 at this point, but us. John 17, verse 20 says, Neither do I pray for these alone, but for them that shall believe on me through their word. That's us. That they may be one, as you, Father, art in me. The kind of unity that Jesus wants to see in the church is a mirror of the unity between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. You feel like sometimes we settle for something like way less than that. We settle for like church splits and unresolved grudges, fights and squabbles and camps and tribes. When Jesus literally prayed that we would have a Trinitarian-like unity, That's crazy. That is mind-boggling. 
Because there is only one God, okay, we don't believe there's three gods, there's one God, that means there is one body of Christ, right? There's a oneness, a unity of the church. And yet because our God who is one is also three, that means there is diversity. We're not all exactly the same. No other religion can cut the Gordian knot like that. You have Hinduism with its millions of gods, and so there's sort of no sense of unity, and everything is all over the map. And then you've got Islam that's like this Unitarian, and it's rigid, and it's no freedom, and there's no color or richness to it. You get Christianity where there's oneness, unity, threeness, diversity. It's unlike anything else in the universe, what the church of Jesus Christ has. And here's what I am wanting to just lay before you. Jesus prays this. So I'm praying that I would be in them and thou in me, that they may be perfect in one. That the world, okay, when, when there is unity in the church, this is what happens. That the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. When the world, when Mobile, Alabama looks at Cloverleaf Baptist Church and sees a group of people who would not naturally get along with each other, getting along with each other, it says, Maybe there's something to that Jesus stuff they're talking about. If they look at us, though, and we're squabbling just like everyone else is squabbling in the world, there's nothing supernatural about a bunch of people squabbling with each other. The world does that really well. But if the world can look at us and say, there's something different in this fragmented world where everybody's disunited and fighting and squabbling and isolated... And then they walk into this room and are like, these people are singing and they're happy and they're praying together and they they have purpose and meaning in their lives. We're offering the world something that they do not have. We want people to come, as it were, to the window of the church and put their face up against it like a child looking into a donut shop, right? You go over there to Krispy Kreme and like, ooh, I really want one of those. Even if they're not inclined to believe our Bible, that we live with such a unity that they really want it to be true. This is mind-blowing, isn't it? I want to just conclude as we pray. Would you pray that we would experience what Jesus asks for in John 17? A, A unity that will reach into eternity, a unity that testifies to the world, a unity that is brought about by the gospel. But listen, it's going to require gospel grace. It's going to require Christ-likeness. It's going to require this effort that we have to put out. And it's going to require this understanding of the gospel where we all have the same understanding of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. So would you just bow with me?